Good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. We've been studying through the book of Jude on Sunday mornings, uh, but this morning we're going to make a bit of a detour. If you're a guest with us and you did not bring a Bible, you should be able to find the book of Acts, um, specifically Acts chapter 2 on page 909 of a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. While you're turning there, it's helpful for us to note that Luke, the author of Acts, actually has divided the book into three major sections that teach us about events that are taking place in three major geographical areas. Uh, The kind of thesis statement for the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and at the ends of the earth. But the book is broken down in Acts chapter 1 through 7, events taking uh, taking place primarily in Jerusalem. And then Acts chapter 8 through Acts chapter 12, events taking place primarily in and near Judea and Samaria. And then after the conversion of Cornelius from Acts chapter 13 to Acts chapter 28, events taking place in what we might consider to be the ends of the earth, outside of Jerusalem, far, you know, beyond, out in the Roman Empire as Paul is on his missionary journeys. Luke did this because of Jesus' teaching in Acts 1-8, and after Jesus' work to save sinners on the cross... He tells his disciples that this work has implications, not only for his disciples, but for all people everywhere. After dying on the cross to save sinners, he confounded his enemies by raising from the dead. And after his resurrection, he commands his disciples now to take this gospel, this good news, after waiting in Jerusalem to receive the Spirit, to all peoples and all the nations of the earth. After he gave them instructions in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After giving them this spirit, he fills them with the spirit, he empowers them, and then we begin to see these wonderful things happen in the book of Acts. 3,000 people are saved at Pentecost. A man who was lame from birth is given the ability to walk in Acts chapter 3. 2,000 more people are saved in Acts chapter 4. Multitudes of people are healed in Acts chapter 5. The scripture tells us that these are signs that the kingdom has come in Christ. They're signs of the presence of Christ's spirit with his people. And our text this morning comes immediately after the conversion of 3,000 people at Pentecost. God pours out his spirit. Naysayers are confused as God's people proclaim the gospel and they accuse them to be drunkards. Then Peter preaches the gospel after quickly moving past their charges And the far-off people are are now brought near. And Luke highlights for us several of the things that begin to characterize this early band of Jesus' followers as they learn how to live life together and with one another as a new faith family. Things that were important to the early church. Things that are important to me as a member of this church. Things that are important to me as a pastor serving you in this local church things that I'm going to submit to you should be important to you as members of this church or attenders of this church, things that characterize God's people. So we're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verse 1 all the way through the end of the chapter. I'm going to ask you to follow along with me. Luke Ryan centered the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself where you're speaking to us today. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus 
whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we ask, Father, that now you would make the book live, that you would apply it to our lives, that you would give us insight into your scripture, that you would help us to understand the teaching of this chapter, that we might walk in grace and knowledge in conformity with our Lord Jesus Christ, or perhaps, Father, for those who are here but are not yet Christians, that they might hear the good news of the gospel and be born again by the Spirit of Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who's revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to take you on a journey this morning on how the reality of the gospel changed the lives of those who were in the early church and how the gospel continues to change the lives of everyone who yokes themselves with Jesus Christ. I want to do this by noting how five of the things the early church valued altered their life and relationship with one another and how they should characterize our life and relationship with one another. Notice, first of all, a commitment to the truth. Look with me again in verse 42 of chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. At the time when everything was supposed to be going right for the disciples as followers of Jesus on earth, tragedy happened. Their hopes for deliverance were dashed on the rocks and crushed completely as the man that they called Christ was bloodied and beaten and hung on a tree. But hope rose from the dead, Peter tells us. Then once again, when the disciples would assume that everything should be going their way after the descent of the Spirit, and the disciples of Jesus are confronted once again with new people who are standing against them as their convictions are mocked. They're called drunkards in verse 13. Well, did Jesus say, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. At both of these crossroads, the disciples of Jesus and followers of Christ in the early church were faced with the decision, will we follow the truth? Will we believe the truth and follow the Christ even in these moments? Will we suffer ridicule for the one who was and is the way, the truth, and the life? 
What Luke records for us in the book of Acts and manifests for us is a commitment of the early church to the truth. They answer ridicule from people who are mocking them by quoting Joel 2, verses 16 through 22. They answer the question of the absurdity of the resurrection by highlighting that David, the Davidic king, had predicted it in Psalm 16, verses 25 through 28. They answer objections to Jesus' lordship by noting that David himself recognized his own inferiority, and he looked forward to the one who would reign forever because he was eternally begotten and not made in Psalm 110. Objections answered, skeptics converted, and the early church devotes their time to learning the apostolic truth because it changed their lives. They were born anew from this truth. They have the living and abiding word in them. Their lives are preserved not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I once heard a friend say about Sunday sermons, as we think about the absurdity of the fact that so much of what we prioritize here on Sunday mornings is not remembered by God's people. The truth must be preached. Sermons must be proclaimed. But the reality is, is that you probably remember about 3% of everything that you've ever heard from this pulpit over a lifetime. You are sustained by a lot of ordinary, forgettable meals, just like you are in your life. And yet the disciples themselves devoted themselves to it. Friends, often in my walk with the Lord, and I would assume that this is true in your walk with the Lord, God grips us with his truth. He grips us with his truth, and he changes us forever because of it. Two occasions sit prominent for me in my life as I think about them. And the first, my conversion, sitting in a room just like this, hearing the gospel preached, what I thought to be for the first time, and God at that moment giving me eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of the gospel, and everything changed. And the second being the day my dad died. Knowing for the first time why people walk away from the truth and don't want to believe in the reality of an eternal hell. A good dad who loved our family, who didn't trust in Christ. And realizing in that moment I'm faced with the decision, will I believe the truth? Likewise, the early church was faced with the decision, will they believe the truth? Will they be committed to the truth? Will they live lives that are oozing with convictions for the truth, despite opposition, despite hardship, despite sorrow that they might experience, despite what their neighbors might say, despite what their spouse might say, despite what they might be experiencing in this life? There was a common commitment to the truth. Immediately upon their conversion, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, focusing all of their minds' energies on learning the truth and the apostolic word. Friend, let me ask you this morning, fellow member of this church, do you prioritize the ministry of the word in this church? Do you prepare yourself? for Sunday morning gatherings by looking over those sermon cards and reading and preparing so that when you come, you might hear the word of Christ and be prepared to study it? Do you prepare yourself for the Sunday morning gathering by going to bed so that you can wake up early to be here on time and to fellowship with God's people? Do you prioritize the apostolic teaching and the word that is being preached here by not only hearing it on Sunday mornings, but by following up with that word in the middle of the week? To see if you're actually applying what you learned on Sunday so that you might continue to grow as a Christian throughout the middle of the week. 
Do you prioritize what you're learning by actually speaking with other believers in this church about what you heard preached so that together you might be iron that sharpens iron? Or do you come and do you listen and you walk away and you no longer pay attention to the word? The early church, what we see that characterized them was a commitment to the truth. There's a commitment to the truth, but notice secondly, there's a commitment to community, a love for the faith family. Look again in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. As the early church, the disciples comprising the early church begin to rally under the banner of the truth, they begin to rally together. God has given his friends uh, to them. God gives us his friends as our own. And as Jesus reached through the, and preached the gospel to people, what we see is that Jesus begins to gather a community of people through the heralding of this gospel. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins is not just about individuals trusting Christ, but it's about individuals coming together in the context of community, inviting people to be a part of something much larger than their own personal faith encounter as they're brought into a kingdom of faith family that was not based on genealogical pedigree. It's not based on socioeconomic status. It's not based on geographical location. It's not based on ethnic descent. It's not based on educational standard. It's now based on repentance and faith, and people are brought together. Jesus' end-time kingdom brings people together, Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, young and old, black and white, American and everywhere else. God bringing his people together that they might rally together as one people. Jesus' kingdom is a family that does not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Jesus' kingdom is a family that bears one another's burdens and so fulfills the law of Christ. Jesus' kingdom is a family that learns how to live with everyone else in the body of Christ because these are the people that Jesus dearly loves. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, how are you doing loving the people that Jesus dearly loves? Do you love the people that Jesus dearly loves? Or have you simply learned how to tolerate other people here and put up with their face? Jesus dearly loved people learn how to love his dearly loved people, and they devote themselves to gathering together that they might bear one another's burdens. What Luke records for us in the book of Acts manifests a commitment of the early church to community, a commitment to fellowship, a commitment to deepening their understanding of what it means to live this life together. And that is often messy, even as we see throughout the book of Acts. As in any family, there will be sorrow and joy. There will be rest and peace. There will be tension and there will be blessing. But Jesus said, despite all of the difficulty, by this they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, do you love one another? And how are you doing loving one another this week? So Paul prayed for one of his church plans that God would cause them to increase and abound in their love for one another. We all love and long for deep and abiding community because all people were created for community and none of us were created for isolation. Our desire for fellowship reflects the fact that we're actually made in God's image who exists in perfect community. Friends, over the years, one of the things that I've seen in my life, and I assume that any believer in here would be able to testify, 
that one of the ways that I've been most impacted is by my membership and fellowship with other believers in the context of the church. The trajectory of my life has been completely changed. How I live as a husband and a parent, as a member, has been completely changed. From purity and discipleship, as people, as a young believer, got me a Bible and began to disciple me in the way of the Lord. As a family man, when I think of Herb Searles and man who was a retired engineer at our previous church, who simply just walked alongside me and encouraged me. As a child of God, when I think of Jeff Eliff, my mentor, before I left Ninth and O, to watching to see how someone leads and thinks and cares for other people at great cost to themselves. When I look at the lives of our elders like Terry Krause and Renee Rodriguez and Nick Gaetani and Tim Garber and Will Hall and others as they've served the congregation, watching people in the faith uh, family has actually changed the way that I've lived. The community that they experienced, that they were invited into, changed them, and they were deepening their love for one another as they pressed into messy relationships. Friends, let me ask you how you're doing. Are you pressing into messy relationships in the context of our church? Are those the very people that you avoid because it takes time that you don't feel that you have or energy that you don't feel like you can give? or resources that you don't want to share. Friends, what we see is as God's gospel goes forth, it brings people together that they learn how to lean into each other's lives. It should not be strange for you to be asking one another, how can I pray for you? Can I hold you accountable? Confessing your sins to one another, building one another up, serving one another. It should not be strange for God's people to come together and to devote themselves to the fellowship, to find ways to encourage one another as we see the eternal day of God drawing near. As we see them giving themselves a commitment to the truth, the very first thing that we see in the book of Acts is that they devoted themselves to that teaching and to the fellowship. As they learn, they grow in their love for the local church. Friends, do you love the local church? There's a commitment to the truth. There's a commitment to fellowship. Notice thirdly, there's a commitment to worship, a passion for God anchored in Christ. Look again in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. As the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were awestruck at the revelation of Jesus on the glorious Mount of Transfiguration, so now the early church is awestruck by the glory of the crucified one who was resurrected to reign. As Mary sat at the Lord Jesus' feet in worship, so now the early church prostrates itself in worship by devoting themselves to the preached word, by attending to gathering together, and by participating in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42. Signs that remind us of what God has done for us and signs that point us forward to what God has done for us and will never do again. They point us backwards and they point us forward and they remind us of what God has done for us in Christ. All of these aspects of corporate worship remind God's people that the Lord Jesus Christ acted decisively on their behalf. And as God's chosen people, he will act decisively on their behalf again, finally and climactically when he returns. They worship because he acted for them. And their worship reminds them that God is always for them and never against them in Christ. Friends, one of the things that we're doing when we're gathering together on Sunday mornings is reminding ourselves not only of what we're prone to forget, but what we don't believe, that God is for us. 
So often we think that he's forgotten or that he's forsaken or that he doesn't see or that he doesn't care. But when we gather together as the people of God, we remind ourselves, not just individually, but together, that we're not alone and that God does love us and he has given us his friends as our own and that he is always for us and never against us. And we do that in the context of worship as we participate together as a congregation. Anybody who's ever sat near the front row over here knows that having me for help in the singing department is a lot like needing help. I love to sing. I love to sing loud. I love singing songs, and I'm rather awful at it. In fact, from her earliest of ages, our daughter, who still to this day, when we're singing at the table, puts her fingers in her ears while I'm singing and leading us in family devotion. But I, I love to sing. And I love to gather with God's people and to hear them sing because it's a reminder to me that I am not alone. Corporate worship, as we're singing and participating together, amening the same prayers, singing the same songs, confessing our sins, professing the same truths, is a reminder that Jesus has not saved us and placed us on an island, but he has given us a body to be a part of. And it reminds us that together we are going somewhere. We are going somewhere together as God's people. Friends, we all need this. From the person with a dramatic conversion, the person they might consider to have the boring testimony in here. Everybody needs the reminder of gathering with God's people and being encouraged. The early church was committed, committed to teaching. They were committed to community. They were committed to worshiping with God's people Focusing on the ordinances. Notice, fourthly, there was a commitment to prayer, a dependence upon the Spirit. Look at verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Like the religious haters in Jesus' day, modern-day Christians can assume that following the Christ should manifest a greater vindication, that people should be able to see that we're right and that they're wrong, that they should be able to see us in a position of victory for our rightness and them in a posture for their wrongness. But the call of the kingdom is not a posture of victory and vindication. It's a posture of dependence, not immediate vindication. The early church knew that only God makes the dead live, so they prayed. And they knew that all things belong to God and come from God, so they prayed. And they knew that God could deliver the captive, so they prayed for Peter's freedom. And they knew that only God could sustain them, so they prayed when they were persecuted, and they asked for endurance to speak boldly. They lived their lives in a posture of dependence together with a sense of dependent expectation in their prayers. If God didn't provide or didn't show up or didn't manifest himself, all would be lost because they would not be able to accomplish anything without him. Friends, let me ask you, in your prayer life, if there is much of one. How are you doing living in a posture of dependence? Or are you trying to accomplish everything in your Christian life on your own? When you're a type A person, you get frustrated when there are so many matters that you cannot take into your own hands. Several years ago, I found myself as one frustrated with God because my parents were not responding to the gospel. I had prayed and prayed. I had shared the good news and been very decisive and amounted a heavy defense against all of their objections, and yet nothing occurred. And then tragedy struck, and my dad died. And having given up on everything altogether, 
A few years later, my mom trusts in Christ. Not from anything that I had done, but the Lord just answering dependent prayer. Friends, I think for many of us, we're just trying so hard to do so much and not putting ourselves in a posture of praying individually and corporately together. It was only when we assume a posture of dependent faith that we're actually able to receive from God what he provides on his own. And we see this in the early church. What characterizes the early community? Hearing the word, gathering with the people, giving themselves to a congregational worship, and praying together all positions of dependence. They're committed to the truth. They're committed to community. They're committed to worship. They're committed to prayer. And notice finally, they are committed to mission. Look with me again, verses 43 and following. And all came upon every soul. Everything that they've committed themselves to in verse 42 changes the way that people perceive them in verse 43. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God is not silent. He sent the incarnate word and he has given us the written word so that the words of salvation might be proclaimed. God is not silent. He was not deaf to the inward groanings of his people and he heard their prayers. God is not silent and neither are we as true followers of Jesus Christ to be silent. The gospel of Jesus Christ is tied to a verbal witness. The quote attributed to Francis of Assisi that he did not say, preach the gospel and if necessary use words is well intended and entirely wrong because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is why the scripture tells us that Peter, after he had already preached, used many other words to exhort the unbelieving to live and not die, to turn away from their sins and to trust in Christ, to receive the implanted word and be saved. He continued to plead with them that they might come to Christ. The early church did not simply live lives that were markedly different. They proclaimed words to people who needed to hear words. Friends, we have to live in such a way where we're committed to truth and we're committed to the community and we're committed to worship and we are committed to prayer. But we also have to be a people who are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified that they might hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, we must be pleading with unbelievers to turn to Christ and trust in Christ so that they might know that their sin has separated them from God that their sin is an offense to a holy God, that their sin has merited the wrath of God, and that their sin left unrepented of will send them to hell forever, but that there is hope, hope if they trust in Christ and believe in Christ and believe in what he did on the cross when he substituted himself for them, bearing all of the wrath that they deserved and then raising again three days later from the dead that they might be vindicated and justified and know joy forevermore if they believe in the Christ. Friends, what must characterize us as a people is not simply having a good Reformed church, but the great church covenant 
and a great confession of faith and a lot of really healthy members who know a lot about the word and a great constitution so that we don't act all haphazardly, but being a people who proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So church, let me ask you again and afresh, how are you doing in the proclamation of the gospel? What are you preparing to do even now as we look forward to, as our pastor Tim Garber prayed a few moments ago, to the reception of 15,000 college students in our community in just a few weeks? Who right now are you praying for that you might be able to speak on behalf of Christ to them? And what obstacles are you putting up to say, this is why I don't need to do it? Friends, it is often incredibly simple to break down some of the barriers that exist between us and the unbeliever. A few days ago, many of you know, we've moved from up there to right over there. And as a result of that, our kids wanted to make cookies to give them to the neighbors instead of receiving the cookies. They wanted to make cookies. And this is just a simple way for them to break down a barrier, using the kids to kind of come over and say, hi, I'm the pastor. It's an easy way to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people or to just let them know, we're here and we know that you're also here. Friends, let me ask you, are you proclaiming Christ, sharing Christ, and being honest with people about their need for Christ? The early church had to preach and proclaim this gospel so that people might hear of their need for the Savior and be born again. I think back many years ago, uh, I don't remember everybody that I've spoken the gospel to, but I remember one of the first people that I ever shared the gospel with. In fact, it was, as far as I know, the first person I ever shared the gospel with. Her name was Heather Matuzic, and she eventually professed faith in Christ. And as far as I know, Heather still owns and operates a Chick-fil-A and trusts in Christ and has lived a faithful Christian life. And I remember sharing the gospel with Heather, completely scared, blundering through my presentation of the gospel in such a way that it was probably not only unhelpful, but unedifying to her. And yet God in his mercy used simple words to lead someone who needed the Savior to faith in Christ. Friends, when we think of sharing the gospel, we often have some insurmountable task in front of us and we think that God could not use me. But it really is as simple as asking people if they would believe in the Savior. The early church that believed this gospel that is preached in Acts 2 committed themselves to these five things, to truth. Are you, being commit, are you committed to the truth, learning, growing, preparing your minds for action? They committed themselves to community. This is why we tell people, if you're here and you're not a member of our church or an evangelical church, we invite you to be a member of our church, to come and to learn what it means to be a member of our church, or to go to a church where you can join with people who are like-minded and agree with you, that you might be in good fellowship and standing with them and hold them accountable as they hold you accountable. They committed themselves to worship to not simply gathering with the people of God, but to being in the congregational gathering that they might point one another backwards to what Christ did and to forward to what Christ will do when he comes again. They were committed to prayer on Sunday mornings, individually, Sunday evenings, as we pray. And they were committed to mission, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, by God's grace, let us be people who are living lives that are committed to these things as well here at Christ Church, to the truth to community, to worship, to prayer, to sharing the gospel of Christ so that people might know of the Savior. And friend, if you're here and you've heard all about this and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, today we want to say that you're just in the best of all possible places as you learn about what a church is supposed to be like. We would invite you 
to find one of us at one of the exits following the service so that we might open the gospel of Jesus Christ with you afresh and tell you how you too can trust in Christ. Come to Christ. He is a merciful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would have your own way. We thank you, Father, that your word is truth. We thank you, Father, as our pastor, Tim Garber, reminded us earlier that your word does not return void. We pray, Father, that we would trust in the sufficiency of your truth. And Father, we ask for this church community that you would build it up that it might be committed to truth and to community and to worship and to prayer and to mission. And you might use a church committed to those things to change this community. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.